It's Tuesday, August 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The last evacuation planes and troops have left Afghanistan, ending the longest war America has been involved in. There are still some Americans and Afghans that remain there, but their evacuation will no longer be a Pentagon mission. It is now a diplomatic mission. In the end, after 20 years, the U.S. failed to defeat the Taliban, establish a functioning democracy, and stop ISIS extremists. What happens next is still unclear as we need to resettle thousands of Afghans and see what kind of government is formed by the Taliban. Ishan Tharoor, foreign affairs columnist at the Washington Post, joins us for the end of America's presence in Afghanistan. Next, a look inside Pfizer's Pearl River Research Center, where the vaccine was created with their partner BioNTech. The team there is in a never-ending effort to stay ahead of the pandemic. The lab has variant hunters that continue to track the effectiveness of the vaccine on new variants, a virus farmer that grows the latest variants for testing, and scientists developing the next formulation of the vaccine if needed. Olivia Goldhill, investigative reporter at Stat News, joins us for a look inside Pfizer's labs. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A new chapter of America's engagement with Afghanistan has begun. It's one in which we will lead with our diplomacy. The military mission is over. A new diplomatic mission has begun. Joining us now is Ishan Tharoor, foreign affairs columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Ishan. Pleasure to be with you. Well, the longest war for America is now over. We heard from General Frank McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command, announcing the end of it. All military planes, the everything is done there. We had uh, all our military personnel out of Afghanistan, the last civilians and Americans that were going to be transported out. That all is done. There still is a few Americans, I think he said in the low hundreds, and other Afghans that we will possibly still evacuate out of there, but that will not be done on a military side. It will be done on the State Department side. So, Ishan, tell us a little bit more, just the end of this 20-year war that we had there. Well, yes, it's it's come amid these really harrowing scenes we've seen over the past couple of weeks um, with you know, countless Afghan civilians and others trying to get to Kabul airport, which the United States and some of its allies had control over now. Uh, we've seen we're seeing as we speak uh, footage of of Taliban fighters walking through the hangars of this airport, uh, commandeering some U.S. vehicles that have been left there. Uh, it's all highly symbolic. It's all uh, incredibly sad if you're somebody who was invested in this 20-year effort to stabilize Afghanistan, roll back Taliban, and uh, set up some kind of functional democratic fledgling republic there. Of course, this, there, there's no actual end to this conflict. Uh, the U.S. will remain engaged in various other ways, uh, including, uh, we imagine, um, various sorts of clandestine counterterrorism operations against this Islamic State outfit that's already uh, operating in Afghanistan and carried out that deadly attack last week. So it, it, it's a symbolic end, but it of course, there's a lot that's still going to keep on going. Definitely. Especially, as I mentioned, you know, if the State Department is still going to be working to try to get the last remaining few people out of there, there's going to be some type of presence there eventually. And you mentioned, you know, the Taliban walking through trying to commandeer whatever's left there. You know, the General McKenzie, he did say that they either destroyed or decommissioned whatever that they had left there, you know, in the hopes that they wouldn't be able to reuse any of that. 
but Sean, tell me a little bit more about the failures basically that happened there because 20 years ago, we did go in there to Afghanistan, took down the Taliban government, but in the end, they're back. We failed to defeat them. And as you were talking about the rise of ISIS-K, all this other stuff, we didn't really do the job that we set out to do on that front of it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a, there's this kind of fascinating thing happening in the United States right now when we talk about what's happening in Afghanistan, uh, especially here in Washington, where I'm sitting, uh, where uh, a whole bunch of very prominent people who have a long history uh, insofar as managing these conflicts are criticizing this administration for its uh, for its decision to withdraw. It's criticizing this administration for for not being flexible enough to remain and, and maintain this military footprint. While at the same time, there's less of a conversation uh, about all the years uh, in, the, in the past that have led, led us to this moment, all the many mistakes. And so what am I talking about? I'm talking about um, uh, a military occupation in, uh, run by the United States that saw quite a few uh, Afghan civilian casualties and airstrikes and other sorts of actions. I'm talking about a culture of uh, aid, especially um, you know, massive amounts of money that the U.S. pumped into Afghanistan that not only was siphoned off by various corrupt officials, but almost to a certain extent, and we see this in uh, a, a whole host of uh, classified documents that my colleagues have reported on, uh, that in and of itself created a culture of corruption and fecklessness within the Afghan state. There was just so much money sloshing around that people did not know what to do with. So there's a failed state-building project. And of course, what we've seen in the last few months is this complete collapse of an Afghan military that the United States invested so much time and energy in training and equipping. Uh, and and that raises a lot of questions, uh, not just about you know the nature of American confidence in what they were doing, but also... Uh, understanding of the situation and what makes uh, Afghan society and Afghan government click and work. And and what we saw was a lot of uh, deals, a lot of uh, kind of quiet deals that happened between local Afghan forces and Taliban, uh, a widespread lack of uh, uh, morale, a widespread lack of trust in the central government, the United States of trust that had propped up for so long. But also that was compounded by American mistakes in their own dealing with uh, Kabul and also this whole process of negotiations with the Taliban right. that many argue happened way too late. And so what happens now going forward? Obviously, the credibility of the U.S. is damaged there, especially in that region, but with some of our allies as well. And then what happens with the Taliban now? They have to set up a government. Who knows how they'll operate with other countries? You know, these are all the next steps to look out for. I would caution against talking so broadly about American credibility being damaged. I think uh, there are a lot of people in Afghanistan who wanted the Americans to go. Uh, there are a lot of people there who, uh, even if they don't like Taliban, were not particularly pleased by the way in which uh, you know they were function- operating in a country uh, controlled by uh, a government that's propped up by the U.S. that was feckless and quite weak in many ways. So, and then. I think more broadly speaking, going forward, yes, we will see uh, the U.S. remain engaged to a certain extent in trying to help broker 
whatever the the post uh, Taliban takeover political situation looks like, there are talks happening between Taliban officials and other Afghan figures who are still in Kabul over some kind of uh, interim government, at least. Uh, obviously, the, the Taliban will have a much bigger role and a much bigger seat at the table than the Americans would like, but that can't necessarily be helped at this point. I think I think more broadly, and what Americans kind of have to sit with to a certain extent is that the legacy of these 20 years is one that really calls into question some of the the delusions and belief in American power on the world stage. The U.S. did a hell of a lot in trying to develop uh, think, uh, infrastructure in Afghanistan, trying to build democracy there, and in trying to fight this war. And it, you know, it invested a lot of blood and, and a lot of a lot of treasure. It lost a lot of lives. It participated in a conflict that led to a lot of death for Afghan civilians. And yet, what does it have to show for it? On the way out, American officials were burning American flags in the U.S. embassy to make sure that these American flags didn't fall into the Taliban hands. And that seems to me quite quite a bleak metaphor for 20 years of uh, investment in that country. Uh, so it, it's, the Biden administration, though, is making a different bet. They're, 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 they believe that uh, it's time to get out. And they were they stuck to the deadline, which was today, uh, and they've pulled out. And they believe that the U.S.'s influence on the world stage is not defined by uh, these kind of counterinsurgency operations in far, far flung parts of the world, but rather a more kind of robust uh, challenge to China, perhaps. Also, a greater emphasis on rebuilding, on nation building at home. And so, so the dynamic uh, there will remain, uh, will be one that's going to be contested a lot in Washington in the days to come. You know, finally, obviously, the political toll on the administration with all of this, right? I mean, there's going to be investigations into why we didn't pull out faster. I mean, not pull out faster, but uh, start evacuating Americans and Afghans earlier. That's also one of the next steps too. the political damage that the administration is going to suffer because of all this. That's definitely there, and I think uh, you're going to have a lot of uh, Benghazi redux, perhaps, from Republicans uh, in co- in Congress. Uh, I think they're banking on the fact that polls show, at least have shown up to late, that most Americans support ending the war uh, in Afghanistan, uh, and that most Americans... Uh, uh, support, uh, you know, drawing down uh, for the American military footprint overseas in general. Uh, I think what's going to happen now is a rather ugly set of factors. It's important to remember that the situation of Afghanistan is really fragile, and there's a, a looming humanitarian crisis, a looming economic crisis in the country, uh, and you're going to see various flows of refugees continuing, even though the U.S. isn't evacuating anyone anymore. And so the focus, I mean, in some places, already has already turned to this, but there'll be a pretty nasty partisan fight over refugees, probably. And there'll be a pretty nasty partisan fight over, you know, what the legacy of this whole war is. And, and, and the tragedy of that is that it shouldn't be partisan. Both Democrats and Republicans should own it because they both participated in this 20-year conflict. A very complicated situation, you know, in the end, as we started off with this the end of our military involvement there, although there will probably be something going forward. But for now, the 20-year war is over, and we'll see what all the next steps are going to be. Ishan Tharoor, foreign affairs columnist at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
you know, there's a team of people who are constantly looking for the new variants, what's out there, so they're the ones that we've heard of and others, um, kind of analyzing the variant to understand the mutations, and then they're growing it right there in their lab so that they can test their vaccine on it. Joining us now is Olivia Goldhill, investigative reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Olivia. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk a little bit about Pfizer and their labs right now. They're you know they're constantly working on the vaccine. What's next? Tracking the variants to make sure that the current vaccine holds up and still offers uh, protection to people that get it. You uh, and through Stat News got a chance to go to one of their labs, the Pearl River Research Center, where they made the vaccine. They've made other vaccines there in the past. So it has, it has a history of all this, but really the team working there on what's next. They have uh, their variant hunters, they call them. They have their virus farmer where they actually grow those variants so they can do testing on it. And a bunch of other people that are all involved in this. So, Olivia, help us walk through some of this. What are they doing here at the Pfizer labs? Yeah, so I mean, Pfizer was obviously behind this vaccine that has been incredibly successful and used around the world. Um, but the work isn't over as COVID is mutating. You know, they have to make sure that the vaccine stands up to the new variant. So it breaks down into, you know, several different departments. There's a team of people who are constantly looking for the new variants, what's out there, so they're the ones that we've heard of and others, um, kind of analyzing the variant to understand the mutations, and then they're growing it right there in their lab so that they can test their vaccine on it. Um, so it's, it's pretty relentless, yeah. and so far the results have been really encouraging, um, but it's definitely not about to slow down anytime soon. Tell me about the lab itself, because... It's a biosafety level three lab. They have airlock doors. The security protocols there are at the highest level. So tell me about that part of it. Yeah, so to work with uh, a virus like COVID, you need the absolute highest level uh, security lab. And um, Pfizer didn't have that um, at the beginning of the pandemic. So they started, they partnered with um a researcher, Pei Yongxi, who's at, um, in Texas at the university there, um, UTMB, and uh, they would kind of sequence the new variants and uh, synthesize the, the spike uh, gene, which is kind of each mutation has a different spike, and fly it Texas for him to then insert into the COVID virus. But Pfizer managed to build their own, which kind of got approved and is up and running, um, started in March. Yeah, you, only kind of 20 people have access to it. They're airlocked, so anything that goes in and out has to go through this airlock. You know, they're wearing very intensive protective gear um, and kind of a uh, mask that kind of is constantly uh, ventilating. It's called a um, yeah, an air purifying respirator they have to wear and, and you know, a hooded suit and gloves. Um, and it's very intense to obviously, right. you know, we're all trying to avoid COVID and they're <laughs> going there and dealing with it every day. Yeah, exactly. They're dealing with it every day. And then and the other interesting part is you kind of mentioned too, growing the variants there in the lab. You know, for them, it's so hard to transport the virus and those and the different variants when they're testing them across the country, right? It's easier for them to just grow them there so that they can see the effectiveness effectiveness of the vaccine. How does that process work out? 
Right. So basically, if you want to understand how the vaccine works against the different variants, um, you, you need to have the variant itself. And one option would be to find it in the wild, you know, in South Africa or Brazil or wherever it is, and kind of um, transport it itself. And in, instead, they, um, that just takes way too much paperwork and bureaucracy of all the international travel problems. So instead, they grow it um, and they do something very unusual. Kind of, I mentioned how they synthesize the, the spike gene um, and insert that new spike into the COVID virus. So that way, they've got kind of the, the new version of it. And then they mix that with serum from the blood of people who have been vaccinated. And that gives a really good indication of um, how the, the virus responds to the vaccine. It is not perfect at all. It's only an indication. But it's a very valuable test when you get kind of um, the real world results uh, take much longer to play out over several months in the world. You know, the Pfizer vaccine obviously has its full FDA approval. I mean, it's one of the main two vaccines that we circulated here in the United States and obviously around the world. You know, so they're on top of all of this and they have about 900 people working in this lab and they're constantly working nonstop, basically, as the virus keeps mutating, as things are happening. I mean, we're already talking about booster shots. So they have to deal with the booster shot idea right now. And then they are also, you know, formulating what that next vaccine 2.0 would be for whatever future variants or whatnot. Tell me a little bit about that work. Yeah. So um, at the moment, they don't believe that a, a different vaccine would be is currently necessary and they're hoping it, it won't be necessary. You know, so the booster shot at the moment is just going to be the same as what we had already, but it's, it's a third dose. Um, but they do need to do the work. Uh, to understand what it would take to create an adjusted vaccine um, so that when the, if the time does come that, that there's a variant that doesn't respond well to the existing vaccine and they need to alter it slightly, which is what kind of um, how flu vaccines work all the time. You know, there's a, a standard version that's then adjusted to the new strains. Um, they're already doing the work of creating a new vaccine just so they can get an understanding of that process. So they're creating a slightly altered vaccine um, for the beta variant, which is the one that originated in South Africa, and kind of going through the states of um, going through the steps of what it takes to um, develop and test and manufacture that. Um, and their goal is to get to a stage where it would just take a hundred days um, from when they first, you know, synthesize the um, new variant to having some of the new vaccine ready to go. They're definitely not at that stage yet. Right. You know, it's taken several months to test the, the beta vaccine. But this is all work that um, the beta vaccine itself won't be needed, but the work is necessary so that hopefully, if we do need a new vaccine, it will be much quicker to then adjust and create it. Yeah, and even the regulatory process, right? Uh, kind of like the flu vaccine, as you mentioned, small tweaks, they might be able to push it through a lot faster because it is a small tweak. Uh, they're not taking it back to the base again. So yeah, just an interesting look at the inside of their labs and how they're constantly working to make it better. Olivia Goldhill, investigative reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thanks very much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.